If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharings of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Our lectionary is very good sometimes in helping us move through the most significant passages in a whole book. For example, on those years when I'm preaching a portion of the lectionary that deals with the book of Genesis, it pretty much takes us through all the great stories that we find in Genesis. When it's Exodus, we move chapter by chapter pretty much right on through the book of Exodus. When I preach from the Gospels, the lectionary is certainly based on spending a whole year in the Gospel according to one of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. However, this year I'm preaching from the epistles, and those who provided our lectionary for us have been having us jump from one to the other, back and forth, because they seem to be focused more on the theme, what needs to be said, rather than the exact epistle from which that passage comes. So I'm just trying to help you stay with the lectionary here by giving you a little bit of history each time we make one of those shifts. It's been almost a month now since we were in the letter to the Philippians, so let me remind you about this important Greek city. Philippi was founded in the year 356 before the Common Era by Philip II of Macedon. Macedonia, northernmost Greece. You may not know Philip II's name, but you certainly know the name of his son, Alexander the Great. Philip II had armies, he had wealth and power, so he saw to it that his son had the very best education affordable. His mentor and tutor was Aristotle. So you're back in the golden age of Greece with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Philip II, and his son Alexander the Great. Now, Philip decided to form a city, name it for himself, of course, but he put it where he did because gold and silver had been discovered in the area. Three hundred years later, all the gold and silver gone, and the Greek Empire had been brought to its knees. The Romans now controlled this territory. The Romans were trying desperately to link west to east, so they had built a road all the way from Rome to ancient Byzantium, later to be Constantinople, today Istanbul, Turkey, of course. And that road went right through Philippi. You recall that in the first century before this common era, one of the Caesars, Julius, was assassinated. And those who had perpetrated this plot on his life 
fled the city down that famous road, going as quickly as they could, east and as far from Rome as possible. The leaders, Brutus and Cassius, you remember. When word got out that Caesar Julius had been assassinated, Mark Antony and Octavian pulled armies together and pursued Brutus and Cassius. They caught them on the plains just outside Philippi. There was a terrific battle there that day in the year 42 before the Common Era. And when Brutus saw that it was over, he took his own life. Mark Antony and Octavian were successful. Octavian would become the Caesar Augustus. And he saw this city as a place that needed to be enhanced, built up. And so he sent freed slaves and retired Roman legionnaires into Philippi. And 92 years later, in walked the Apostle Paul. Into a heathen city, a pagan city, a city that had multiple gods, all of them relating in one way or another to the fertility cults. And dared to tell them, there's only one God. We Jews have known him for 2,000 years. And now he's decided to reveal himself to you Gentiles in the form of Mary's child, Jesus. I want to tell you about him, Paul had said. But there were many who didn't like what he said, didn't like the way he said it, the fact that he disrupted their commerce, so they threw him into jail. And in the wee hours of the night, when he and those imprisoned with him were singing and reading and praying, there was an earthquake. The doors of the jail sprung, and Paul and those with him escaped. They hurried down the Via Ignatia to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and when the enemies pursued, then they turned south and went more than 200 miles to Athens, he had very little success there, and he moved on to Corinth. Scholars believe it was four years later that he wrote back to the church at Philippi, and I had such a short time with them, and yet this little body that had believed what he had told them had really hung together. He's very proud of them, but he's also trying to clarify some things for them. And we have this passage for today. First of all, he says, there are some of you in Philippi who boast about all the good things you've done. And therefore, you feel really proud of yourselves. If anybody is boasting, I could certainly boast. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only that, I was a part of one of those favored two tribes of the twelve. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. My great, 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 great grandmother, 1800 years ago, was named Rachel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I had the best of teaching. Gamaliel, the famed Gamaliel, had taught him. You want to compare Dossiers here? You want to compare resumes? I think I can do as well as you. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a course in Christian education. And our professor of Christian education was asking us one day, how many of you grew up going to Sunday school? And I raised my hand higher than any others probably. Oh, he looked right at me and said, and did they give you those little perfect attendance pins at your church? And I said, yes. And did you get one of those? Yes. How many of those did you get? I said, 13. 
Wow, he said, and they hooked right on to each other, didn't they? Yours must have come from your shoulder to your waist. And I said, yes. And then he turned to a student sitting right across the aisle from me and said, as I recall, you never went to Sunday school. Is that right? He said, that's right. Your family never went to church, right? That's right. You didn't really come to know Jesus Christ till college, right? He said, that's right. And then this professor turned to me and said, did one of your Sunday school teachers ever tell you that God loved this fellow as much as he loved you? Did he ever tell you that all those years you had perfect attendance, God didn't love you any more than he had always loved you? Gail and I have been twice into the royal tombs in Vienna, Austria. It's an impressive place to be because the wealthiest and the most powerful of the Austrian rulers are buried there. And when these various ones died, their family could afford the very best artist of any given period to adorn their tombs with beautiful sculpture. The two times we've been there, though we had different guides, we heard the same story. That these tombs are on the grounds of an ancient monastery. There were monks there who were dedicated to ministry among the poorest in Vienna. Yet, their grounds were chosen as a burial grounds for the royal family. A magnificent cellar, basement, if you would, was constructed so that these tombs are underneath the main part of the monastery and kept clean, looked after by these brothers of the poor. But when Maria Teresa died, there was a tremendous funeral. Thousands of people wanting to get in the church. Not nearly all of them could, of course, but they lined the streets. And when the funeral was over, her casket was placed into the royal coach, and these magnificent horses pulled the coach through the streets of Vienna. Thousands of people mourning the death of their queen. They got to the royal tombs and knocked on the door. And one of the brothers inside asked, Who goes there? And the man outside said, Maria Teresa! She has presided over the greatest empire of all of Europe. He told how many armies she had, how much gold she had accumulated, how many palaces. And the priest inside said, I do not recognize her. The man outside beat on the door again. And started to recite again, though not as many things this time. And the voice inside said, I do not recognize her. And the fellow outside finally got the point, beat on the door once more and said, I have brought to you Maria Teresa, a sinner set right with God through Christ Jesus. And the doors were opened. Bring her in, they said. Bring her in. Yeah. 
Paul says, I had no righteousness of my own. I didn't stand right with God because of anything I had ever been able to do or someone else had done to me. I realized I had no right standing on my own. But that brings him to the point too. But, but, he said, I do now have a right standing that comes through faith in God, in Christ Jesus. It's a long convoluted sentence there. But faith that he's come to in Christ Jesus, a faith in God that God wants to set people right. Harry Hills is an Episcopal layman out in Carmichael, California. He has written that in his community, there are a number of churches that put together Thanksgiving baskets of food for the poor. And there are other faith communities, he said, who put together food baskets for the poor at Christmas time. But he said, our church decided, well, you know, really the most glorious day of the year for Christians is Easter Sunday. What better day in the year for a family to get to sit down together and eat together and celebrate God's greatest gift of all, the raising of his son, Jesus. So he said, we advertise that we will provide baskets of food for the poor for Easter Sunday. Last Easter Sunday, he said, I got to the church early. I looked, all the baskets had been prepared. Uh, in every basket, a ham, potatoes, vegetables, salad materials, and a pie. Suddenly, the first man came in, he said, and asked, uh, may I pick up the Easter basket for my daughter? He said, sir, uh, we don't have Easter baskets. These are baskets of food. He said, but I promised her an Easter basket with grass, with candy eggs, with a bunny. I'm sorry, Harry said. Uh, that's not the kind of baskets we advertised. Uh, we have food in our baskets. And to be sure that those who had asked and been checked out were given a number and all the baskets are numbered. Do you have a number? And the man said, I have a number, but I wanted an Easter basket. She's going to be so disappointed. And Harry said, I'm sorry. Let me give you what I have. And he said he walked over to the table. And as he walked basket by basket, he could see that they were all exactly the same. A ham, potatoes, vegetables, salad materials, and a pie. A ham, potatoes, vegetables, salad materials, and a pie. And he got to the basket with this fellow's number. And there was an Easter basket in the top of it with grass and candy eggs and a bunny. So I picked it up, took it over to him and said, there must have been somebody who knew exactly what you needed. And when I read it, I thought, yes, and that one was God. God understood what all of his children needed. A way that we could come to trust the grace of God that our cantabile sang so well about a few moments ago. That we could come to trust the grace of God. That we could see in this gift of God, Jesus of Nazareth, how far God's love was willing to go for us and we could come to faith in him. Number three, Paul says, I'm not claiming I have reached the goal. 
says it twice. I'm not telling you I have reached the goal. I can tell you that I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies before. Twice he says, I press on. The next verse, I press on. Now, in Paul's writings, he often uses athletic imagery. That's what he's doing here. We know that famous passage where he says, like, so great a cloud of witnesses, we run this race. He has in mind that Olympic race, that marathon, when one has run all those miles, 26 miles, and you finally end up in the great amphitheater. And there is Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. Jacob and his two wives and two handmaidens and twelve sons. All these witnesses watching you run that last hundred yards, last two hundred, three hundred yards. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm still pressing on and pressing on. It's what he says in other places about I keep grasping for that which has already grasped me. And another place he said, well, now that you have this gift of right relationship with God, now you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the gift of grace, and then there's something we're supposed to do after that. As one who makes a lot of telephone calls the last four years, I can tell you that I find more and more people who say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what they mean is, I don't go to church, and I certainly don't join one. I play golf, but I think about God. I walk in the woods, but I think about God. I lie out on the beach in the sun, but I think about God. Well, there are pollsters who try to figure out if that's true or not. So they think about really simple things like uh, prayer. Reading the Bible? I mean, if you're spiritual, even if you don't go to church or belong to a church, do you pray? And what they found is that people who don't go to church don't pray either. And they don't read the Bible. You know how they take these polls. Uh, they've gotten pretty good at this. In political seasons, we can see that most of the time they're awfully close. So they go into a city and a country and they interview some of the wealthiest who will talk to them and some of the poorest who will talk to them. People with graduate school and people who didn't finish high school, who dropped out. All socioeconomic levels, different ethnic groups and so on. Well, guess what they found? When people don't go to church, they don't pray either. Um, I told you not long ago that two years ago when Easter was a little earlier, Gail and I took our vacation right after we got through Easter. We were in England and here were the English newspapers saying... That on Easter Sunday, fewer than 2% of all the people were in any church. Well, how many folks in England pray? 25% say they pray every day, and 41% say they never pray. France? 24% say they pray every day, and even more of them, 45% say never. Never, ever pray. I was at a meeting on Tuesday 
where we were told that the fastest growing areas are for United Methodist Christians, the continent of Africa, South Korea, and the Philippine Islands. If the people in the Philippines are going to church and joining churches, how many of them pray? 72% of the people in the Philippine Islands say they pray every day. Only three out of a hundred say never, ever do they pray. Now, you would expect that people who have lived in Russia under so many years of communism would not have many prayers, and you'd be right about that. Only 19% of folk in Russia say they pray every day, and 35% say never. Um, China has similar numbers. 33% of the folks in China say they pray every day, and 31% say never. In the United States of America, we say, 55% of us, that we pray every day, and only 9% of our people say we pray never. Paul is saying you receive God's gift, and that's right standing with God. You receive God's gift. You accept the fact that God does want good to come to you, that God has always wanted good to come to you. He wants that for all the children who go to Sunday school, but he also wants it for kids who never were taken to Sunday school. Then we're to work out what that means to live as a person who knows herself, himself, to be loved of God. Finally, Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection, that one day I too may know the resurrection. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And then he tells them, of course, later, he does know that power. He was confronted by that power on the road to Damascus, and he's experienced it again and again. The power, the power that comes from knowing God didn't let Jesus stay in the tomb where he was buried, but that he raised him from the dead. Chris Burden is an artist out in California. He's not a painter. He's one of these artists who accumulates things and arranges them to try to say something. With this big economic downturn that we've had, maybe the worst since 1929, Chris Burden decided to have an exhibit. It opened uh, the 1st of March out in Beverly Hills. Now, there were only to be three main things in this exhibit. He was calling it one ton, one kilo. The one ton was a huge block of concrete in the back end of a pickup. This is a very old pickup. He chose a very old pickup, had it refurbished and painted pumpkin orange. And in the back of this pickup, a 2,000-pound block of concrete. It's labeled one ton. So you can sort of see what that looked One ton. Right next to it, one kilo. He was going to have a one kilo bar of gold, pure gold. It's about two pounds, as you know, about two pounds bar. But the one, one bar didn't seem to be enough. So he decided he needed a hundred of those. It's about three million dollars. About a hundred of those just stacked in a little pyramid form there. One ton, one kilo. And then he had some little people made out of paper matches. You know the kind you used to see in all the hotels and things? Tear out one of those little paper matches and strike it. Uh -huh. One little paper match to look like people. 
Sometimes they're at war. They have little straight pins pointed at each other. These tiny little figures. And Chris Burden's message? People come and go, but gold remains forever. Our book says, you're right, the gold gets left here. But generation after generation of faithful people go home to be with God. Amen.